Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to a very special edition of the Empire Podcast dedicated to Crimson Peak and an interview with its director, the fantastic Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, who came into London recently to talk about Crimson Peak. And he sat down with me for a good old chunk of time. We talked about that film and a great many other things indeed. It's a very funny and enlightening interview. I hope you enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the great Guillermo del Toro. How are you, sir? Excellent. Excellent. Good to see you. Same here, man. We were just talking a second ago about the brilliant Crimson Peak. You saying it's one of your three favorite films yeah. of yours? Yeah. I mean, my favorite, depending on the week, <laughs> the order is Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, and this one. And they are kind of related to each mm-hmm. other in very strange ways. And they are, in equally strange ways, very personal, very sort of autobiographical. <laughs> In which way is this one autobiographical? Well, many, many, many of them are hidden, thank God. <laughs> they haven't <laughs> discovered the corpses in my basement. No, but for example, little silly things, the opening apparition with the girl, that happened to my mother. That's a story she used to tell us when we were kids, that the night after the funeral of her grandmother, her grandmother came and sat on her bed, and she heard the bed springs creaking, and she could smell her perfume and hear the fabric of her dress and she touched her in the shoulder. We were obviously very impressed by that tale. I mean, I think the movie talks about <laughs> what I think about love, which uh-huh. is, I think, it's a very imperfect proposition. And it should be, you know, it's what makes us human and so forth. I love the portrait of the mother in the wall, mm-hmm. which makes me crack up every time. It's actually very similar to my grandmother, oh, really? with whom I grew up, and her cameo, the little cameo jewel that uh-huh. she wore is the real cameo from my grandmother that Lucille wears and that was worn by Marisa Paredes in Devil's Backbone. And that was worn by my mother in Super 8 Short I Did and was worn by an actress in a 16mm movie. Edith, in the, her biography, shares my same birthday. But more than anything, her craft as a writer, I identify with it a lot. You know, the fact that she tries to do something with the stories. Her line is not a ghost story, it's a story with a ghost in it. It's a line... I used many, many times to describe Devil's Backbone, etc., etc. There's a lot of things that are deeply personal for me. There's a lot of stuff to pick up on there as well. Going back, first of all, to the painting, yes. the portraits. That was done by David Cronenberg's daughter. The picture, the photograph of the painting was done by David's daughter. Okay. And then the painting was commissioned. It took about six months to be done properly because what happens in movies for me is many times even in good movies you're watching a Korean movie a painting comes up and it's a painting that has nothing to do with the style or a pamphlet or a piece of paper with design I'm very very punctilious about these things and we wanted the design of the newspaper to be of the time we wanted the painting to feel like it took time it took about six months to do the painting so we had to choose somebody that looked like my grandmother that looked severe enough to make the point because at the end of the day for me in Crimson Peak the real villains and the real origin of the horror is human and more than anybody I think the monsters are the mother and the father that is not there you know and it's interesting that not to give too much away about the film for those who haven't seen it yet but it's interesting that you don't show the mother and the father. There aren't yes. ghosts in yes. the film. Well, the father is the biggest ghost. Yeah. The father is completely absent. And what we did, or what I tried to do, is the father for me is in the house, but we did the archways in the shape of a human body. And I did some uh, silhouettes in the same shape in the patina of the walls. You know, just try to give a presence to the father. I made the windows of the house like eyes, round, mm-hmm. many of them, so that you feel that they're watching. I mean, the house is all the family and I think the real horror in the movie is family very dysfunctional family I mean I think they created monsters I started to 
know, real horror when I started worrying about the fate of my kids. When you're a single unit or you're a couple, it's much easier. But it's like The Exorcist, when I saw The Exorcist as a kid, it didn't scare me. I was like, ah, you know, I was a kid that was into monster movies. Ah, it's not that scary. And then I saw it as a father and it scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. You know? yeah. I've heard some people say that when they become parents, because I'm, I'm not a father yet, the scariest moment in The Exorcist is not anything to do with the supernatural. It's not, a hospital. It's a hospital. It's a spinal tap sequence. I mean, the two things I feel that connect brutally on The Exorcist is the hospital and the fact that if you have experienced the teenage years with any kid, mm-hmm. there's one day where you're blessed, blissful child. You enter the room or they come down to the dining room and their head is twisting <laughs> 160 and they're speaking in tongues. I think that horror always functions with the commonalities. When you can identify with something that is not supernatural, for example, the omen always works because it's again is on the fear of the otherness of the mm-hmm. kid when you're a father there's a moment in which your power only reaches so far because your kid has his own identity so these are the things that you identify in a way Richard Donner has an interesting theory about the omen I don't know if you've ever listened to his commentary he doesn't believe it's supernatural he doesn't believe it's the, uh, the devil it's the antichrist it's no. nothing to do with the devil it's just a series of unfortunate coincidences and a very big black dog <laughs> <laughs> and they hired the wrong nanny but I've always found it interesting in terms of director's intent. I mean, I was just talking to George Miller yes, about yes. some stuff for some fan theories for Mad Max Fury Road. How great is that line? Uh, he's amazing. I was just talking to George Miller. I was, I mean, is that the biggest name drop? I'm so sorry about that. No, no, but, no, no, <laughs> but do you realize how a pair of fortunate bastards we are? You know? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I was just talking to George Miller. I mean, it's like saying, by the way, I saw God during <laughs> breakfast and he said I could have the blood sausage that is good for my arteries. <laughs> we were talking about director's intent and how sometimes theories spring up around things that happen in movies that the director didn't necessarily intend. Yes. Does that happen to you? Well, what happens to me is I always say, look, here's my movie the way I codify it. I try to write the movie being mindful of certain things. Like I organize certain symbols and things in a way. But there is a whole other layer that you're completely unaware of that not only may be different than what you're trying to organize, but it might actually run completely counter to your intentions. And that's because any act of communication, let's not call it just art, any act of communication has a a conscious level and a subconscious level, you know? So you are communicating what you think you are communicating and then there's another layer that is profound and you're not in control. Are you aware of anything like that on Crimson Peak yet? I'm sure there's a lot of very disturbing things working there but I'm not aware I always try I may fail but I always try to find a humanistic streak in everything I try to do you know I try to be in favor of the humanity in in a strange way even in the darker things for example in Crimson I do the same thing that I did on Devil's Backbone which is as the movie progresses rather than you hating the villains more and more and then cheering when they meet their end I try to build the villains into becoming more human and sort of understandable, you know, towards the end. Because I always say the big movies that demonize even the most horrible historical figure was at one point a kid that was loved by the mother and that did cute things. At some point, there's a human origin to everything we experience. I think it's important to deal with that. The relationship in the movie between Tom Middleton and Jessica Chastain's character is extraordinary and deep. It's interesting to me how quickly you cut away from Edith and yeah. Sir Thomas Sharp to focus on scenes with Thomas and Lucille. I guess that's part of that decision to humanize the characters, to let us see their agenda. This movie is the one where I have tampered and worked with the most in post. That is because I had two choices in the movie. I had the choice of doing something where you think, are they or are they not? 
or to do a movie about somebody going into a really wrong relationship. And I chose the second route. I mean, we previewed the movie twice in much longer cuts. Like the first preview was 15 minutes longer. The second one was about 25 minutes longer. I tried to make them the wrong cuts to learn the right things. I didn't want to preview with the cut that I felt was perfect. I said, let me see what they think about this. I saw the reactions and I sort of tailored the movie to what was clear the audience was thinking, you know. I color corrected and tampered with the digital cinematography of the movie four or five times more than I did with Pan's Labyrinth. We mixed the movie about three full mixes instead of a single full mix. We recorded, I think we had 12 recording music sessions for the movie. I think that we did something like 75 versions of some digital shots. Anyway, I utilized most of the year to work on the movie. I was going to say, because you wrapped in March, April last, last year. I had a whole year to work on the movie and even a little more. Normally, I deliver them in six months if I can. I mean, sometimes digital takes you longer, but I normally deliver direct Scott 12 12 to 14 weeks after wrap. That's amazing. Yeah, this one, my post supervisor kept saying, This time, is it locked? Locked? Like we opened three <laughs> bottles of champagne. <laughs> they were getting cheaper and cheaper. The final one, I think, was cider, you know, <laughs> bubbly cider. <laughs> Can it be counterproductive, though, having that? I mean, it's never happened to me. And I think you know, yeah. this one needed it because I wanted it to be a sort of a visual world. Look, you can never guarantee somebody will like a movie. It's like religion. We all respond to the bells of the church we believe in. You cannot make a movie for everyone. What I think is, if you like the movie, I want to give you a world that you can fall into. I want to give you a movie that you can feel was handmade, that we labored on it, that if you watch it a second time, you find new layers. But a lot of them are going to be in the visuals a lot of them you know like the movie is full of little signs and symbols and the way we designed the house and the way we designed the wardrobe so that instead of eye candy you get eye protein yes you know you get content in the visuals when people say well you know you have the look of the movie and you have the content it's the same thing inevitably a lot of the times you may see movies where the look happens by accident if you're deliberate about it and you calculate it and you work on it it can be eye protein well, it's extraordinary to me the level of detail having been on the set mm-hmm. I mean for example the word fear is written throughout the house but you never see it never see it it's in the furniture is in the woodwork is in the walls but it's not that people are going to read it and become afraid it's just you playing with things the furniture existing in two sizes you know there are two sizes for the furniture and the props so that Edith looks smaller when she's afraid the movie uses the symbol of moths and butterflies constantly to symbolize the two main characters for me that are Lucille and Edith in a way and the house is full of these symbols they're in the furniture they're in the walls they're on the floor patterns they're on their wardrobe The wardrobe is patterned like butterfly wings to the point where the gown of Lucille, when she's running, it opens like the wings of a moth and so on and so forth. As I said, the house has windows that look like eyes, all the hidden shapes. And just color coding the movie, you color the movie in three colors, basically, which is golden for the American period, cyan for the European period. And red exists only in connection with the ghost, the clay and Lucille. Nobody else wears red. So, you know, you treat it like a painting. Uh, When I visit museums with my kids or my wife, we always stand in front of a 
painting, and the painting is much more interesting if you know the story behind. Not only who made it, but for example, if you see the painting of Polyphemus and Galatea, if I can explain to my kids what the myth is, I say, you know, Polyphemus is a, a very jealous Sicilian cyclops, you know, then all of a sudden, and, and the river of blood at her feet is the blood of a lover, and you can sort of find more, and I think movies shouldn't be different than that, in mm. my opinion. So how long does it take? I mean, you have a year in post. The level of detail in this movie is astonishing. How long does it take to design Crimson Peak? It takes Peak? a long, long time. I wrote the movie with Matthew Robbins eight years or nine years ago in 2007 and uh, I started doing notes for that back then in my notebook and some of the notes then we started the pre-production like six months before anyone else joined I rented the apartment in front of mine literally across the hall to lodge the designers so I was riding on one apartment and I could see the guys four times a day on the other apartment and we went to lunch or dinner together then the production designer comes then the wardrobe designer comes and you have already a palette of colors you have already a proposal look this is the way i see it and then you write biographies for example for the characters i wrote biographies for each of the actors and then you give those same biographies to the designer of the sets and the world of designer and you say how can we tell this biography in visuals i'll give you an example the house of edith the house of edith is all straight lines even the lines in the wallpaper is full of really modern design, like cutting-edge design for the turn of the century. It's a very nouveau-rich house. It's very ostentatious. It's very wealthy. It's a family that has been prosperous for 30 years. And you see all that. You see the father dressing very sharp and blah, blah. blah. And then you see Edith's clothes are the same color, gold. Mm. She becomes a drop of gold through the movie. And then you see the sharps, and their house is full of these gothic arches and really coruscated, decaying, rotting textures, obviously in cool colors. It's a house that has parts that are medieval. It's really like a completely different stand on their family history. And then you see their clothes, and they are very, very tight, like cocoons or like shrouds, really super tight to the body. They are fabricated to be 10 years older than anybody else's wardrobe. They're wearing their parents' clothes. Imagine that somebody walks in with great bell bottoms <laughs> and a tie-dye shirt. That's, you know, th that's how shocking it would have been sort of in a one, you know. It's really interesting to see that. That's what I had on just working. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> when you interviewed George Miller, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you dropped the glasses. <laughs> no, but those are details. They're not just nice, great-looking clothes. They are telling you who they are in yeah. a way. Absolutely. And this movie, it really leapt to the front of the queue because you're always very busy. You always have a lot of projects that are bubbling yeah. under the surface. Well, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> that, that, I would say that are never financed. <laughs> it's, it's a better way of putting it. From my perspective, they're not bubbling. They're like sitting stale in the corners, you know. It's covered in mold. Covered in mold. You know, this was literally just completely inactive because of a difference in criteria of about 12 million. Everybody wanted to do the movie for 30 35 and I said we need 48 to 50 just because I thought look gothic gothic romance needs a little bit of an overwrought melodrama style and if the actors are acting that tone which mm -hmm. is a tone that is not naturalistic at all then the visuals need to have those two notches above reality you need to also be melodramatic with the visuals on the other hand, I also designed a movie to, for example, accommodate a very classically roaming 
camera. We are never, you know, doing insane moves. It's always a camera that feels like an old large camera on a dolly or a proper crane. So I need to build a house. Why? Because I need to have openings for the cranes, the dollies, blah, blah, blah. So the movie laid, shall we use your nice terms, dormant or <laughs> unbubbly, you know, for about eight years. And then Legendary said, we want to do it and we'll do it for the number. You know? And this was immediately after Pac Rim. Yeah, it's a hard movie to pitch to a studio. Mm. It's female-centric, very, very, very much so, very deliberately. It's a genre that no one has really tackled this way in 40 years, yeah. at least, and R-rated. You know, so when we discussed the R rating, for example, uh, Legendary said, well, we cannot have the budget and they are without compromises. So we're going to have to do adjustments. You have to give up 30% of your salary. You have to really stick to the budget. We actually came in one million under <laughs> under budget. I gave them back yeah. change, but I didn't blink. I said, take, of course, take the salary, but let's not touch the R, you know. And they stood with it. Why was that so important to you? I think, I don't want to give any more spoilers than we already did, but the core of the movie is a very morally ambiguous core. And it was not a movie that you're not going to come out of there feeling that the world is right again. There's a sense of melancholy and loss in Gothic that you have to keep in a sort of very adult core. It's not a movie that is going to be fun to be. You're not going to be throwing popcorn. It's not a horror movie. It's a Gothic romance. So more than scary is eerie and unsettling if we do our job right the R was necessary for the violence and the sex absolutely was an R rating I'm casting my mind back here a little bit was that one of the sticking points as well without the mountains of madness oh yeah yeah but now the PG-13 has been pushed in such a way that I think mountains could be maybe done with a dual Mm -hmm. cut because nothing is particularly gory and I think that you can go to more unsettling places but, you know, God knows, if that comes around again, I would think about it twice. This one, I couldn't do it, PG-13. Okay. If projects aren't dormant or covered in mold, <laughs> yes. is there a great Guillermo del Toro wheel of projects? No, you, well, I, what I happens is I have done about nine movies, and I have written or co-written 23 screenplays. So there are 14 <laughs> unbobbling <laughs> projects that I have. It's literally like The Fisherman. The ones that go away are the bigger ones. I have Monte Cristo, which I which is a gothic version of the Canto Monte Cristo. I have a list of seven with Mark Frost, which is a fantastic movie that I think Robert Downey, Sherlock Holmes did a lot of the things we were trying to do. There's Mountains of Madness, there is Wind in the Willows, there is, I mean, there's so many. And what is invisible, when people read about it online, all they read is a title and the name and the company that's making it, and it dies there. And then they go, and oh, whatever happened. But what I live is then I put a year or two years mm. into doing the screenplay for that. And anyone that has written a screenplay knows how hard it is. Then you deal with the heartbreak that it doesn't get made. Beauty and the Beast at Warner's and the Witches at Warner's are, I think, honestly, in my estimation, two of the better screenplays I've ever written, and they didn't get made. There's a point where people think directors live in a room full of pillows, like a pipe, like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland, (laughs) and you're smoking some substance and saying, let right be done, let's tackle the mountains of madness. You you don't have the choice. You don't live in a lofty place. I mean, you are struggling to get the movies made, and you try to make them, but you cannot finance them. Because it's obviously outside your control for the most part, unless you go ultra, ultra micro-budget. Which I've done a few times and I'm doing right now I'm going to go to a much smaller budget on my next project in between 
crimson and if pacific rim happens which i hope it does i will go to a smaller budget to come out of the water and take a deep breath you know because economical constrictions are great if they come with freedom you know what i'm saying i mean yeah. I, i will always rather go to a lower budget and get the freedoms you know yeah absolutely so the next project what can you say time-wise not necessarily but the project I, I itself think, i think we will be shooting in may or june next okay. year very quick very uh-huh. quick i'm writing we're prepping at the same time we've been doing r&d on it for a while and knock on wood yeah. <laughs> thank god we had some wood <laughs> yes there is. Yeah. What, what would you have done is it english language spanish language english language but might as well be <laughs> might as well be spanish language it's really one of those you know I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. Was this something that you moved quickly on? Because No, no, I've been working on it for five years. Okay. But in terms of Pac Rim 2, because... Oh, that it, was, was, it was always waiting in the wings. I mean, that one was bubbling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that one was bubbling. Okay. So, you know, the reality is that Pac Rim needs to be tackled with a very, very, very tight budgeting. I mean, we cannot just go, let's throw the house out the window. We need to plan it so it's big really big but it's done for a number that makes sense yes that fits the 411 million that the first movie made and i wanted to match the ambitions with a very careful sort of pre-planning hopefully it'll happen what's the current situation can you say because the result yeah no the the situation is we have finished a screenplay a new script john spaths co-wrote it with me and we did a new budget that took us about seven months to several scouts to different countries until we found exactly what we needed without having to build this or that and now we're presenting the new script and the new budget and then the people that are way above my pay grade decide <laughs> if they do the movie or not. As far as I'm concerned, I would do it in a second. But it's the same with Hellboy 3, you know? It's like, yeah. I would do Hellboy 3 in a second, but I actually think the studios should see that there is an audience for it, but, you know, I don't run a studio. This is true. If you did, that If would I did, be I'd probably take a billionaire studio and make it a millionaire studio. <laughs> Three easy moves. Oh, absolutely. What's your phrase? What's the best way to become a millionaire? Uh, start with a billion and run a movie Start with a billion yeah. and invest in film, yes. yes. Yeah. I'm going to drop another name now. Ron Perlman. We had Ron Perlman on the podcast yeah. about a month ago. I believe you've met him a couple yes, of times. Yes. He was talking about Hellboy 3. And of course it's, he was. It's, it's, <laughs> apropos of nothing, he just asked, unprovoked. The last time I had any discussion about Hellboy 3 in Hollywood yeah. was with Ron Perlman on Ventura Boulevard in a coffee bean shop. He was having a latte and I was having a glass of water. <laughs> this is the last discussion I've had. The last time we had a discussion with a studio about it was a while ago. Oh, yes. yeah. I mean, look, I think it should be done. I do. Yeah. I don't know how those decisions get made, honestly. I've been in the business, so to speak, for 20 years. And how movies happen still eludes me. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you make something that makes 500 to a billion dollars, you get some leeway, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing about Pac Rim, because as you mentioned, it made 411 million, which is on that sort of threshold of sequel or not sequel. It's huge in terms of the fact that it was not a property. It didn't come from comic books, toys, pre-existing material. We created it all. So if you compare it with many of the first of a trilogy, Wolverines or even the first Batman and the new series, I mean, we did really good. Batman Begins. But the key was, can we learn to do it for less and in the same size, in the same scope. And the answer is after trial and error and after learning, we know now that we can go at it in a way that is fiscally conservative more and we can still deliver the punch. 
because you have this idea as well that when a movie gets to a certain level at the box office that yeah. studios can go two ways with it they can either let it go and say okay that was a one-off mm-hmm. or they can look at say the Fast and Furious model yeah. which I imagine a lot of them are doing these days and looking at it going but, but, it blew but you up. Know, I tell you living inside the business is different than looking at it even remotely as an entity that has one line of operation it really is like a billiards shot there's not one factor not even those that determines things it's it's like an existential billiard ball you know you have an actor that suddenly wants to do it and that actor is not hot or is hot and that determines another vector which is for example in the past Hellboy 1 and Hellboy 2 made X number at the box office but they did huge numbers at Blu-ray and DVD. Hellboy 2 didn't happen because an executive said, I like Hellboy 1. (laughs) It made sense financially. And there are so many vectors. I mean, some of them are so accidental and Mm. random that you would shudder. That's why I tell you, honestly, after 20 years, I'm still puzzled about why some things happen, you know? But they happen, and I'm very grateful for those 20 years. I'm very grateful for that. Is there a sense as well, I think we talked about this a little bit in the past, after The Hobbit, is there a sense that you're making up for lost time as well? No, not really. I mean, look, I think that, for example, planning a lot of The Hobbit was great preparation to be able to execute Pacific Rim. Even the logistics of a production like that, I was already handling some of those logistics when we were prepping Hobbit. Everything makes you grow. And my two years in New Zealand remain two of the best years I've ever had in a 50-year-old life, you know. So I am very, very grateful, man. And now you've joined Twitter. Yeah, I did. It's because there were other guys on Twitter saying they were me, which is puzzling because, as I said before, I don't want to be me. (laughs) And somebody else wanted to be me. And, And I was like, oh, well. And the strange thing is they were saying they were me. They were saying, I'm on a tour with a book, or today I showed the movie. I just felt, oh my God, you know, this is really sort of troublesome for me. And we shut them down about four times. One of them was doing much better than I am doing. (laughs) One of them had 180,000 followers. So I I should have actually kept him, you know. But then I felt, you know what, I'm going to do it. And the only thing I want to do there is I just want to tweet about things I love. I don't want to tweet against. You know what I'm saying? I, I think that there's enough tweets that are against. I want to tweet in favor of. I mean, when when we were jurors this year at Cannes, the presidents of the jury, the Cohen brothers, they said, let's discuss the movies in terms of the movies we love. Let's discuss them in the elements that we love, rather than anyone coming in to the discussion hating any movie, you know? And I think it's a good principle because I think the more you put out in the world your enthusiasm and the things that you're happy that they exist, you know, it's a little better. Yeah, it's too easy to be snarky. I always say there's the beautiful, the Sturgeon Law, you know, the Theodore Sturgeon, who said 90% of everything is shit. And then my law, the El Toro Law, is 10% of everything is great. (laughs) You know, and so let's talk about that 10%. Absolutely. I'm not being a Pollyanna. Some of the stuff I'm retweeting is stuff that is horrible reality in Mexico, for example, right now. But all I expect to do in my own tweets is generate enthusiasm for the things that I love. Are you going to stick with it, do you think? I think so. I enjoy it. What I do is I go at it really early in my mornings and I dedicate it about an hour. I think about it. I don't tweet every hour. I will never, God willing, I may break this law. I I don't want to tweet selfies. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, first of all, no camera, no phone camera has uh, that wide an angle. But but I also think I'd rather commune with people not about my life, but about my mind and their mind. So I'd rather discuss things that are in our minds, not what I had for dinner or where I'm at or 
my vacation for us, you know. Absolutely. I hope you do stick with it because it's been fascinating watching you. You sort of you're curating things. You're you're talking about books and films that you love and you think other people should see. Which is and I'm trying. For example, I don't recommend the ones that I think everybody knows. Like if I recommend a vampire book, I'm not gonna go. You guys should read Dracula <laughs> or you should read Interview with the Vampire or Carmela. Yeah. I mean, those are readily available in any list. But I try to recommend things like The Vampire Tapestry. Yes. Or uh, I'm going to recommend in a couple of these, uh, Fever Dream, a beautiful book. Absolutely. One last really, really wicked thing. Tom Hiddleston. Yes. Who is in Crimson Peak, obviously, said that when he read the script the first time, he cried. Yeah, I think he's very, very sensitive man. And he has that vulnerability. And that's why I think he's utterly adorable. As I've said in the past, if he was caught in an alley grinding poppies, <laughs> you would go, ah, oh, poppies. And he's, I mean, he's truly, he's sort of bulletproof adorable. Do you want a hand with those puppies, Tom? <laughs> no, but it's truly, truly, and he is like that. I mean, yeah. that's what is great about him. He genuinely is like that. I've never had as much fun working with a cast as I did on Crimson. They were great, but they were also, each of them was surprising in their own way. Fantastic. Guillermo, it's been a pleasure, as always. Same here, man. Thank you so much. All right, Cheers. let's have dinner with George Miller. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> And that was Greg Guillermo del Toro, director of Crimson Peak, which is out in cinemas now. Hope you enjoyed the interview. If you don't listen to the regular podcast, it's out every Friday, so do listen now for that. And we have a series of specials coming up over the next few weeks and months. Next up, Sam Mendes spills on Spectre. That'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. I've been Chris Hewitt. Goodbye. Goodbye.